All the things you prayed for. Chapter 15. All your sins forgiven. Kravitz gets the text early in the morning. Come down a couple days before the hearing. Our cue is back. Kravitz frowns at it. Istis is a more reliable indicator of her wife's schedule than even RQ herself is. If she says that RQ's op is over, it's over. Even if she hasn't let Kravitz know that she's back, and RQ always lets him know when she's done with solo missions. He does the same for her. She made it clear, early in their partnership, that she wants to know if he's alright. If he's in S.H.I.E.L.D. Medical. If she has to knock some heads together. Kravitz stares at his phone. He doesn't have plans for the weekend, unless quietly worrying about the Senate hearings counts as plans. He knows, vaguely, what they're going to ask him. Questions about his decision to upload S.H.I.E.L.D.'s files the personal attacks they're likely to make. They'll probably call him a sleeper agent, a traitor, maybe make some subtly derogatory comments about his background or race. He doesn't think he's in danger of being arrested, but he doesn't like the idea of being on national television. Again. I'm busy with Avengers stuff, he texts back. A few seconds later, his phone starts buzzing. He hesitates, but answers. You're busy brooding about the Senate hearing, Istis says without any preamble. You're going to be fine. Just intimidate them into submission. Also, she continues teasingly, you can't only visit when you're overthrowing the government. I've been busy, Kravitz says. Too busy for friends, Istis says. Kravitz sighs. Istis is the kindest steamroller. It's impossible to win arguments against her. I'm not going to be good company. You're always good company. Istis says cheerfully. You're eye candy. Istis, Kravitz says, and she laughs at him. I'll see you after the hearing, I promise. I'll stay for a couple of days. You certainly will, says Istis. I'll get Raven to pick up cupcakes. We miss you, Krav. I'll see you soon, he says. You'll be sick of me in days. You'll see. Kravitz is smiling when he hangs up. The drive down to D.C. is uneventful. As per usual, the traffic out of NYC is abysmal. But once Kravitz gets on the freeway, the Maserati he stole from Barry's personal collection eats mileage like nothing else. Kravitz may be going over the speed limit, but Barry's car is equipped with sensors for cameras and police. 
It makes a nice change from knowing he's likely to be pulled over, even when he's driving a purposefully unremarkable Ford Focus five miles below the speed limit. It helps to be friends with rich white guys. It's relaxing, actually. It's the middle of the day, and the commuter traffic hasn't ramped up yet. Kravitz can stare at the freeway and watch the landscape zoom past. He enjoys mindless tasks. He has decades of experience driving. Kravitz learned a long time ago, back in the Red Room. That information is probably online, too. He should go through the data dump for files about him, should look at the Wikipedia page that must have been updated, but he finds himself reluctant. He's been trained to collect all relevant information, and what the world now knows about him is relevant information. But he doesn't want to know. It feels like if he doesn't know, then it still isn't real which is, frankly, illogical, but, well. Barry and Jarvis are monitoring the situation. Lucretia is probably monitoring the situation. He blew his deep-cover capabilities with the Battle of New York back in 2012, so maybe it's all right leaving the files alone. Lucretia might not warn him, but Barry definitely would. Kravitz isn't used to trusting so many people. The past few years have been something of a departure from the norm. The last time he trusted anyone the way he trusts Barry and Loop was when RQ flipped him, and the time before that was... Nice cars always make him remember the soldier. The way Kravitz remembers the soldier... Before he knew about Taco, before he knew about Captain America as anything more than a propaganda tool of the American capitalist machinery, not the soldier who shot him, the soldier who taught him how to shoot. Kravitz frowns and turns up the radio. He doesn't really want to think about this. They knew each other for such a short time. He needs to stop letting the past color his interactions with Loop's brother. He's pretty sure none of this information is online. It's not included in the Winter Soldier files they've scraped from the data drop, and he certainly never told anyone about it. The Winter Soldier was a ghost operative. More legend than fact and he hadn't seen the point in divulging this particular piece of his past. It hadn't seemed relevant. But now it is. Not that he's told Loop. The time for that seems to have passed, and if he were to bring it up all, hey, I knew your brother decades ago when he was brainwashed, but before he was really brainwashed... Kravitz suspects it wouldn't go over well. And it's not like any of his information is relevant now. Reflecting back on Taco's short time in Hall Winter Tower, it seems like he genuinely doesn't remember shooting Kravitz, let alone his time in the Red Room.
It's easier to think of Taco objectively when he's not around, when he's an abstract mission, analogous to a rogue agent that needs reined in, when he's not someone to be trusted. Compartmentalization is a useful skill for a spy, a useful skill for a superhero. Kravitz is going to set aside his memories of the soldier in favor of objective information obtained through direct observation and intelligent reports. Taco seems neither like the brother Loop remembers, nor the man Kravitz worked with. But he's hunting the hunger. That's the piece that doesn't track. An operative of the soldier's skill would have no problem selling his skills as a sniper and assassin to the highest bidder, or failing that, he would have even less trouble going to ground, disappearing. Yet, Taco has been popping up on their radar with unnerving consistency. He's been leaving them intel. Loop keep searching for messages in the data he leaves behind, and Kravitz doesn't have the heart to tell her that the soldier wouldn't do that. But then, Kravitz no longer knows the soldier. He's never known Taco. Kravitz knows he's missing something. Loop comes running into Barry's workshop, which is no surprise. The Senate hearings are starting soon, and although Kravitz rejected their offers of coming down to D.C. with him, R.Q. and Istis are both there already. There's no way he and Loop aren't watching. Barry has the stream already playing in the background while he goes over Jarvis's predictions for Taco's next targets, even though the hearing hasn't started yet, he just likes to be prepared. Barry looks up from his work and smiles at Loop, but his face falls as he catches sight of her dismayed expression. She's got a file crumpled in her hand, and she looks worried as she stops and steadies herself by his desk. What's wrong? Are we suiting up? Barry asks, standing. Is Taco okay? Kravitz? No, it's... it's nothing like that, babe, she says. She's not out of breath, despite the fact that she hasn't really been keeping up with training. Or sleeping. Much. The super soldier serum really was one of his father's greatest achievements. Just... I was looking through the Winter Soldier files again. Loop, Barry says. The files haven't helped find Taco so far. They're horrific, clinical in the way lab reports tend to be clinical. He's read them more thoroughly than Loop or Kravitz. He started going through them after Kravitz dumped all the shield and hunger data on the web while Loop was in the hospital recovering. Every time he goes through them, Barry finds himself fingering the cool edge of the arc reactor buried in his chest, thinking about what it would have been like 
had it not been months, but years of capture in a cave in the middle of nowhere. Babe, you know I have to, she says. The firm set of her jaw contrasted to the tired curve of her eyes. If there's any hint about what Taco's thinking, they're, uh, they're kind of a lot, Loop, he says, and hastily follows it up with, and it's not like I don't think you can handle graphic content or whatever. This isn't, uh, I'm not trying to be misogynistic. I mean, you're a war hero, for Christ's sake. We both saw the last lab and everything. It's just, I didn't want you to have to look at it alone, you know? The way Luke talked about Taco before she learned he was alive, the love she has for her brother, stands in sharp contrast to the dissection of the man in the reports. There's nothing kind in them. No, babe, Loop says. She's smiling now, walking around his desk to hug him from behind. You're sweet, but it's cute that you thought you could stop me. You've got a lot on your plate, he says. Promise I wasn't trying to stop you or anything, but Jarvis and I have it covered. Hmm, Loop says. Barry takes a moment to enjoy the warm weight of her across his shoulders, putting down his tablet. She runs hot, probably because of the serum. They haven't had much time to be alone lately. They made Taco kill Sladar, she says out of nowhere. Did you know? Barry looks up at her in surprise. She looks worried again, or maybe not worried, but concerned. Yeah, I knew. They made him kill your dad. Yeah, Barry says. It seems more real when Loop says it than it did when he read the files. He's been trying not to think about it. The hunger did. You knew about this when Taco showed up? Yeah. Are you all right? I mean, with this whole thing, Taco being in the tower and everything, but also, I guess, I guess, just in general. Barry shrugs, which is hard to do with Loop leaning her weight on him. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that it isn't fucked up. It's, uh, really fucked up. But I've read all the files, you know. It wasn't really him. Loop is quiet for a moment. She moves to sit on the edge of his desk. I wouldn't blame you if you weren't all right with it. Barry takes off his glasses and rubs his eyes. He reaches out blindly to pat Loop's thigh or something, and she catches his hand in her own. He doesn't think about his parents much. They left him the whole weight of Hall Winter Industries. 
They weren't great as parents. They argued a lot. He had a rough adolescence. It's been twenty-odd years. He still kind of misses them. Loop's brother killed Sladar and Marlene Hallwinter. They died alone on the side of the road, blood and rainwater pooling around them. Barry's dad used to talk about the twins when it was close to the anniversary of Loop and Taco's deaths, when it was time for his annual search in the Arctic. He admired Taco. He told Barry about his skill as a sniper and a strategist. His ingenuity called him that smart son of a bitch when he was feeling maudlin. Barry read the hunger files about his parents' death and wondered how hurt, how confused his father was when he saw the winter soldier standing over him, saw that it was Taco Taco holding the gun, thought about the brief moment of realization before his father's death. Barry read that file, and then he read the other files, and he thought about Taco, brainwashed by Nazis, with about as much agency as a bullet fired from a gun. He thought about the cave in Afghanistan, where he spent weeks being held hostage. He thought about the blank confusion on Taco's face when no one else was around, the way he stared into empty space, disassociating while Barry worked on his arm. Jarvis has hours of footage of Taco just... sitting. Like he didn't know what else to do. I guess... It's maybe not the best way to feel, but finding out in a weird sort of way, it's sort of a relief, Barry confesses. Dad was... Dad never seemed like someone who could be killed in a car accident. He was a good driver, you know? He had pretty much stopped drinking, and things were... They were getting better. Like the fact that the hunger put a hit out for him almost makes more sense. He opens his eyes again, looks at Loop. Taco's your brother. And even if he wasn't, I mean, wow, they've done some terrible shit to him. I can't... It wasn't him, yeah? It wasn't him. Loop repeats, almost like she's saying it to herself more than him. I'm glad you have him back, Barry says, because he feels like she could use some reassurance. She tries really hard to project strength, to present conviction. That doesn't mean she doesn't deserve some positive reinforcement. I'm happy that I can help you. He squeezes her hand. Her face crumples a little, like she's maybe going to cry, but she doesn't. Luke pulls him over so that he can rest his head on her thigh, run her hand through his hair. 
I'm sorry about your parents, Loop says, and Barry lets the decade-old wound hurt for a moment. He wishes he'd been able to make up with his father before his death. He shouldn't have stormed upstairs after their last fight without saying goodnight to his mother. Thanks, he says. Me too. Sirs, ma'am, Jarvis says, I apologize for the interruption, but the Senate hearing is starting. Barry and Loop both turn to look at the screen. Kravitz is walking into the courtroom. The senator's attention is utterly focused on him, like sharks scenting blood in the water, already heavy with judgment. Sympathy can wait. Kravitz is halfway through climbing through the kitchen window before he notices Istis sitting at the table. He freezes. He's still in his suit, though he's taken his tie off and stuck it in his pocket. He's a little sweaty from walking. She smiles at him. Uh, he says. Sorry I didn't call. That's all right, Istis says. Her needles click rhythmically. But I thought we trained you out of this. She means the whole entering through the fire escape thing, climbing through the window without using the front door. It was a habit of Kravitz's for a few months after RQ had, effectively, adopted him into their family. Connections were discouraged in the Red Room. So was liking things. Using the front door felt too public. It felt like if he went through it, if he visited RQ and Istis too much, their cozy apartment and their friendship would somehow be taken away from him. He told RQ as much when she confronted him about it, matter of fact and a little embarrassed. She shook her head and said, God, you need so much therapy. And then, S.H.I.E.L.D. wants you to have connections, Crab. And, listen, if anyone gives you shit about visiting, I'll kick their asses for you. Kravitz told her that he was perfectly capable of kicking asses on his own, and she tugged one of his then-short locks and said not to talk back. Kravitz had started using the front door. Right now, he finishes climbing awkwardly through the window, closing it gently behind him. He takes off his shoes and leaves them on the windowsill. Istis keeps watching him, clearly amused. I didn't want any of the news crews following me, Kravitz says, taking off his jacket and hanging it over the back of the chair before sitting heavily in it. He doesn't mind if Istis sees him tired. That's thoughtful of you, Istis says. How'd it go? Weren't you watching? Of course we were, since you didn't let us come, Istis says. I'm asking how you feel, Krav. Where's our cue? Kravitz asks. 
Istis gives him a look at the very abrupt and not very subtle change of subject. She's picking up Chinese food from that place you like, she says. Crab perks up. The place with the good dun-dun noodles? Mm-hmm. Istis nods. But you didn't answer my question. Kravitz winces. RQ might have let the matter go, but Istis wouldn't. He shrugs. It was... about what I expected. Just a few hours ago, he stood in the courtroom, although they looked down at him and said, It's not a trial, and was accused of being anything from an enemy of the state to a Russian mole. How is this country expected to maintain its national security, given that you've laid waste to its intelligence apparatus? For something that wasn't supposed to be a trial, it felt an awful lot like one, especially with the paparazzi lurking outside, with the wreckage of the helicarriers still being dragged out of the Pontemac nearby. The hunger was feeding you lies, not intelligence, Kravitz said. We did what we had to to protect people, in America and beyond, from the hunger. Knowing your history, how can we trust you? Another senator asked, staring at Kravitz from the raised platform where all the men and women with questions sat. Kravitz knows the sort of politicians that these men and women are. They think their hands are clean because they've never physically put their hands on another, because they think that a weapon has any say in who fires it. You trust Captain America, Kravitz said, instead of any of the other things he wanted to say. Instead of pointing out that Congress was fighting to keep their heads above water, that everyone in Washington was trying to prove they had nothing to do with S.H.I.E.L.D., with Project Insight, that Lucas Miller had had friends all over the hill before his role in trying to hand over the world's freedom to the hunger was exposed. Kravitz didn't tell them. He knew they were just looking for a scapegoat, and that he, a black Jewish former enemy operative, the one who exposed the hunger in a massive data dump, made an awfully convenient target. He wasn't raised to talk back. He did turn and walk out, though, and nobody stopped him. His reputation preceded him. Outside, he had to get past all the photographers and journalists and camera crews, and they were all flashing cameras at him and shouting at him to, Look over here! Or asking him questions like, Do you have anything to say about your past actions for the USSR? Or, Mr. Kravitz, do you have the super soldier serum? 
Kravitz had made his way through the crowd as quickly as he could, muscling his way past them and out into the street. He walked. He didn't run. A man running looks suspicious. He walked and walked, and he was sure he was being followed, because of course they would follow him. It's what Kravitz would have done in their place. So he took a meandering path across D.C., with lots of bus swaps and metro rides, until finally it was late afternoon, and he was climbing up R.Q.'s and Istis's fire escape, the back of his white shirt drenched with sweat under his suit jacket. What were you expecting? Publicity, Kravitz says, and then... Do we have to talk about this? Not right now. Istis isn't entirely unsympathetic. For what it's worth, you did a great job. You held your own like a champ. Oh, Kravitz says, pleased. Thank you. He's still not sure whether he did the right thing. Maybe he was too harsh. Don't let them use you as a scapegoat, Istis advises, like she's reading his mind. And go take a shower. Just looking at you makes me feel sweaty. Kravitz rolls his eyes like the American teenager he never was. All right, I can take a hint. He stands and lets Istis wave him off to the shower. The apartment only has one bathroom with a shower, and it's routine for Kravitz to grab a towel out of the closet and lock the door before stripping off his clothes inside. He used to stay over more often, before the Avengers Initiative became a... thing. There's a tube of his favorite citrus-scented body wash still on the bathtub rim, and a bottle of shampoo brand he and R.Q. both use. It's familiar in a way his apartment in Hallwinter Tower still isn't. Not that he needs familiarity. He's a spy. He's fun anywhere. But it's nice to pile his dress clothes on the covered toilet seat, to turn on the water and wait a minute for it to heat up, to step under the stream and try not to think about the hearings. Kravitz suspects they were harder on him because he was alone, because they assumed the Avengers and the remains of S.H.I.E.L.D. were throwing him under the bus. Kravitz would be offended at that if it wasn't a useful assumption. He chose to go in alone. He's the best at this sort of political posturing, and it wouldn't have been fair to let the soldier take the blame through his absence, though he would have been an easy figure to hang the blame on. Kravitz doesn't trust the soldier. But he is Loop's brother, and Kravitz remembers what it was like to have no say in your missions and targets. It's unfair to make the weapon responsible for the wielder. Kravitz has been an operative for a long time, 
and him and the soldier are in the same business. Assassinations, wet works, missions carried out in the dark of night. Not that the soldier would offer him the same protection if their roles were reversed. Kravitz knows that Loop thinks he's being unreasonable, but he's the only one treating the soldier like the man deserves to be treated with his skill, his talents, his history. Kravitz pours some of the shampoo into his hand and lathers it up before he rubs it into the roots of his hair. But the soldier's been acting erratically. It was one thing when the soldier was quietly following Loop around, pretending to be Taco. But now the soldier is moving from target to target, taking bases out with no institutional support, no discernible pattern, and Loop says that it looks like he's angry or scared, and so far every base he's taken out has been... Oh... Kravitz comes running out of the bathroom, shirtless, which is a handsome wet surprise. He's got a towel around his waist, and his hair is dripping everywhere. He looks like he's been hit with a brick, which means that he's really stunned. Despite all the lessons on personing that our Qanistas have given Kravitz over the years, watching K-dramas, going to the supermarket, playing with cats in a cat cafe— He's never really been fond of using facial expressions in his daily life. Istis theorizes it's a coping mechanism. The Red Room sounds like the place where showing any sort of emotion would be punished. RQ likes the moments when she can catch him off guard, when he shows a small bit of unfiltered expression. She grins at him. Don't slip, she says, instead of hello. Kravitz stops running and slows down, which is good, because the towel was starting to look like it was going to fall down. I'm not going to slip. RQ rolls her eyes. Sure, kiddo. He's older than her, but RQ has always considered Kravitz to be something like her younger brother, at least in lived real-person experience. Kravitz sighs and wrinkles his eyebrows in a way that makes him look stern, but annoyed, and she can't help laughing at him, standing there, in his towel, pouting at her like she's his frustrating older sibling who just won't take him seriously. She's missed him. When she came home with their takeout, Istis said that Kravitz seemed tired, sort of down, that he didn't want to talk about the hearings. Understandable, considering what they saw on television. Kravitz held his own magnificently. Watching, RQ had felt proud. That was her partner, eviscerating the American government on a live TV. But there was a bitter edge to it. Kravitz had always eschewed the spotlight. He spent his first 
few months at S.H.I.E.L.D. trying to take up as little space as possible, despite showboating on missions with her, like he wasn't sure how to act when he was being seen. As an operative, being efficient, being effective, all of that hinged on his anonymity. He must have been so uncomfortable. She's a little surprised he volunteered. R.Q. privately worried that she's been the cause of all this. After all, she's the one who encouraged him to join the Avengers Initiative when the director tapped both of them. The one who suggested partnering him with Captain America when R.Q. was given the Wakandan op, which at least ended in a coronation even if S.H.I.E.L.D. is defunct now. She's always thought Kravitz deserved a life, and a life means having friends, knowing people who aren't just her and Istis. Being friends with Lupin Barry was good for him. But now, his entire history is laid out all over the internet, and R.Q. knows how much Kravitz must hate it. Istis says RQ's overprotective sometimes, but that's what happens when you decide to flip the Russian super spy you tangoed with on an op before realizing he's never had any sort of childhood or normal life and then adopt the now very confused assassin who occasionally sleeps in your spare room after he tells you about his sad, sad personal history. Istis can glance up at RQ like she can tell RQ is thinking about her. She puts down the box of takeout that she's opening and looks over at Kravitz, who is still standing half-naked and dripping all over the kitchen floor. No shirt, no service, Istis says. Go put something comfy on. Wait, no. This is something important, Kravitz says, which is surprising, because he usually listens to Istis, even when she tells him not to. I figured out what Taco's doing. I have to call Loop. You can tell her after you put a shirt on, R.Q. says, because backing your wife up is an important part of a happy marriage. And after you eat something. Fine, Kravitz says, put out, but too distracted to protest much, and walks to his room. R.Q. and Istis share a glance. Well, he's out of it, Istis says. I bet he's not even going to dry his hair, R.Q. says. I'm going to go get another towel. She stands, leaving the carton of pork fried rice behind, and walks over to the linen closet to grab a towel. She's very invested in Kravitz's locks, considering that she is the one who made that whole situation happen. Also, fixing his hair is a nice way to get him to sit down for a bit and maybe talk about things, if there are things to talk about, which, right now... Seems like there are. When she walks back to the kitchen, Kravitz is sitting next to Istis, eating noodles, while Istis opens the rest of the containers. 
he testified in front of Congress. The least they can do is order him a bunch of takeout. He's wearing loungewear, but its hair, as R.Q. expected, is wet, and she drops the towel she's carrying over his shoulders before sitting across from them. Dry your hair, R.Q. says, or at least tie it up. R.Q., Kravitz says, through a mouthful of noodles. Do you want to drop moisture in them? she says, and he puts the carton down and wraps his hair in the towel, which is better than nothing, she guesses. He must really be worked up. What'd you figure out? she asks. The sol- taco, he says. He's doing the same thing I did, that time you were really mad at me. Not the time in Budapest, the other time, with the Red Room. You mean your murder tour? R.Q. definitely remembers Kravitz's murder tour. Six months of not being sure whether he was dead or alive or defected until Kravitz showed up in their kitchen one night, splattered in dried blood and grimly satisfied, and she made him sit down and explain things to her. Where he'd been and what he'd done. Mostly what he told her was that everyone who could control him was dead and he was the one who killed them. She hadn't been sure what to say to that. Istis had made Kravitz tea and told him that the whole point of being partners was that him and RQ were a team and that he should have told RQ what he was doing and that S.H.I.E.L.D. would have helped and that she was terribly disappointed in him. Kravitz wilted a little at that and told them that he didn't think they deserved to get mixed into this, that he had just been angry, scared the Red Room would come back for him. He'd said he was sorry. Istis made him another cup of tea. R.Q. told him not to do it again, and that they were glad he was okay. And he had stared at her like it was the first time someone had told him that, which was... Just really sad overall. But really sad overall is kind of the story of Kravitz's life up until RQ flipped him. Yes, do we have to call it that, Kravitz says, and eats another mouthful of noodles. You have to admit it's descriptive, says Istis. It makes me sound like I'm a serial killer, Kravitz says. I'm wet works. Which is close enough, R.Q. says, rehashing the treads of a familiar joke. What's the difference between a professional assassin and a serial killer? A paycheck. But explain? Kravitz swallows his noodles. I mean, he starts, when I left Russia, when you flipped me, at at first I didn't, I was trying to figure out S.H.I.E.L.D. and you, and being able to, 
make my own decisions. But after that... He pauses, frowns. I remember thinking that I had to get the red room. I was mad and confused that I was mad, but not just at them, at S.H.I.E.L.D. too, at everything. And I didn't want help, and I didn't think I was going to come back. I think Taco is feeling something similar. Your circumstances aren't the same, though, R.Q. says gently. She knows something about the history that Kravitz and the soldier share. Kravitz is prone to melodrama regarding the man. She privately thinks that Kravitz should tell Loop, but it's his secret to share, not hers. Kravitz stares at his noodles. I remember the soldier, and if there's anything left of him in Taco... After everything the hunger did to him, I would bet money that he's angrier than I ever was. He shakes his head and looks up at Arcuanistus. But I've gotten off topic. What I meant was, I think he's going to come back once he's done. He watches the video on a stolen phone, this one lifted from the pocket of a well-dressed banker. The quality is bad, everything pixelated, the voice is tinny, the connection is terrible where he is. It's days after the hearing. He hadn't even known they were happening until he picked up a discarded newspaper from a bus seat and read a headline. Some lady writing an op-ed about guilt, as if she was in a position to judge, as if she could understand guilt. Not that he understands much about it, either. The woman also wrote about punishment. He understands punishment. He touches the screen with his finger to pause it, waiting for the rest of the video to load. There's still a little dried blood in the fine lines of his fingerprints. On the screen, a pixelated Kravitz smiles, all cold. A smile like someone never taught him how to smile. A smile like cardboard, all stiff. He taps the screen to make it play. The smile reminds him of the second time Kravitz interrogated him, just before he left. It's the same sort of mask, this one cruel, that one kind. Someone taught Kravitz how to smile sweet, better than they had taught him to smile sour. Or maybe, right now, he's just playing up the Reaper thing. Kravitz is holding his own, though. He has a nice voice. He wonders why Loop isn't there. He would have liked to see Loop. He's glad she's not in trouble. If anyone should be in trouble, it's probably him.